everybody, it's me, your old ghoul friend, Peaches Christ, and you're listening to another exciting and creepy episode of the Midnight Mass Podcast. <laughs> and this week we've got something extra spooky in store for all you ghouls and goblins. That's right, one of my favorite movies. And to let us know just what film we're going to be surviving, let's bring on my trusty co-host, the one, the only, it's Michael Verratti. I want my cake, Peaches. Duh. You always <laughs> want cake. They always want cake. Wow, that's a reference to another cult series that we're not talking about today, but I love that you went there. I am so stoked because we return to the world of George Romero this week for uh, our movie. And with him, we get to go by way of Stephen King and EC Comics and Tom Savini. I mean, I might as well just jump into it. That's right. We're talking about 1982's Creep Show, directed by George Romero, written by Stephen King, special effects by Tom Savini. I just said all that. But also starring Adrian Barbeau, Ed Harris, Ted Danson, Leslie Nielsen, some Pete Moss. I mean, really, what more could you want? While it is the world of George Romero, I think it's not the world of George Romero that we often think of because of course when you when you say George Romero you think zombies right you think of Night of the Living Dead Day of the Dead Dawn of the Dead which is the world of George Romero but this film is also the world of George Romero mashed up with I would say the world of Stephen King with uh, the world of Tom Savini and the world of EC Comics so it's this wonderful mashup of legends of horror you know coming together to create for me what was the most important horror anthology film of my, probably my life, quite frankly, even though I've, I've loved so many horror anthology films and I love spooky anthology shows, TV shows like The Twilight Zone and I love The Twilight Zone movie, this movie, Creep Show is the one. I think that makes sense because if you grew up during the era when Creepshow came out, this is a movie that brings together so many titans of terror. I think that you also hit something that's really important about what makes Creepshow so special is that it's a little bit of a different way for us to look at all of the people involved. You know, when we last talked about George Romero when we did our Night of the Living Dead episode, we talked about the imprint that he left on the world of horror. You know, now when you look at the modern zombie, The Walking Dead, Shaun of the Dead, 28 Days Later, Night Eats the World or whatever, these are all movies that come in the wake of George Romero. We see countless filmmakers paying homage and making their own horror love letters to this person. Stephen King, similarly, has this track record that he's influenced so many other horror creators, you know, to, to even begin to list all of the tendrils that he's put out into pop culture could take us a whole episode unto itself, and we probably will eventually do an idol worship of Stephen King. That being said, here's a movie where these guys, these pillars of fright, are really, in a lot of ways, doing what so many people do for them and writing a love letter to an era of horror they grew up with, writing a love letter to a kind of horror that inspired them. You know, you know that Stephen King read EC Comics, you know George Romero read EC Comics, and you know that it inspired the work that they did. And for them to go in and create this rich comic book world that is both very much King, very much Romero with the effects of Savini, but also just truly a, a homage to the horror that came before. It's like a perfect storm. 
Yeah, and I think that you've hit the nail on its head as far as why this movie in particular has such magic because you knew how much, or we I think we know how much the content meant to them. And they, as young boys growing up with these comics that they probably, well, we know they were fans of, they were obsessed with them. As adults, having the ability to create this size project, you know, that's why we feel the magic of it because they really cared. They really approached this project with a, a true love and fandom and it shows. Yeah, and the film is just fabulous. And I think one of the things that we talk about with both of our guests, but you and I should get into maybe a little more in depth is just the incredible, when you look back on it now, the incredible cast they were able to pull together for what, you know, on its surface had been dismissed as, as sort of a silly project. But the cast alone is just, you know, Tom Atkins, of course, we know from The Fog and other horror movies, but some of the some of the A-list names, Ed Harris. I mean, yeah. Ed Harris, very A-list, right? Well, we've got Stephen King himself, um, of course, which we do Ted talk about Danson. a lot. Ted Danson, Leslie Nielsen, Adrian Barbeau, of course, another genre legend. Hal Holbrook. Hal Holbrook, right. Like some big, iconic, legendary names in the, the world of movies and entertainment. So, you know, the, the performances in this movie, um, I always I always love it when something that is horror and also comedy um, and outrageous like creep show, you know, gets the sort of level of talent, you know, to, to sort of come in and really chew up the scenery and, and deliver a great movie, which they did. And I think that the allure for this amazing cast was because of the people behind the scenes. I mean, at this point, Romero had proved himself as, as a master of horror and a master of genre social commentary. And I think that's something that really, you know, speaks to actors because actors want to feel like they're in something that's about something. And as we dig into with our guests, for as fun and pop colored uh, as all of these stories are, there is an underlying human message as well. What's also significant is this is the first time Stephen King directly wrote a screenplay that was was made for, you know, a wider audience. This is his first outing as screenwriter. Of course, many of his books had been adapted and in a very celebrated way. We get The Shining and Carrie and Salem's Lot and all of these things. But I think there was probably this momentum that everyone's looking at Stephen King as best-selling novelist who created all of these pop culture moments as viewed through the lens of all these other amazing filmmakers. And now here he is writing a script for us directly, and he's involved. I'm sure that pulled a lot of these actors into the project. The other thing about Stephen King and this project in particular that I think is worth noting is that Stephen King in addition to writing the fantastic novels that you mentioned that were um, turned into movies, which we love, he also was a successful and published short story author. Yeah. And so I'm not sure if Skeleton Crew had already come out at this point in 1982, but we know that Stephen King, over the course of his career, has put out a number of collections of short stories. And 
they are excellent. And some of those short stories um, actually have gone on to become feature films, such as The Mist, uh, which is one of the short stories in The Skeleton Crew. And The Mist is maybe one of my most underrated favorites, you know, as Stephen King adaptations of any movie ever, 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 because I don't think it gets enough credit for just being fucking great. And the story is great if you've ever read Skeleton Crew. It is absolutely great. And I think what is awesome about it is that in many ways, The Mist could have been a creep show story. For sure. And actually, you could take any of these stories and make them bigger. And some sh- sort of deserve it and, and could work better as a bigger story like The Mist. And then some really work best as a, a short idea, like a contained piece, you know, something a little more simple. And I think creep show is such a great example of how Stephen King's short stories are just delicious and really wonderful and really enjoyable. And the other thing about Creepshow that I think I really appreciated as a kid is the comedy. You know, there are some episodes in this, I would say that some of them tend to be funnier than others. I think Father's Day, very campy. The Loathsome Death of Jordy Verrill, very, very funny. But then something like Something to Tide You Over, I don't know, not, not, that doesn't have as many laughs in it, you know? Um, So there's this nice sort of way that this film, just by virtue of the fact that it's an anthology film, actually changes tone as we go through the different stories. Each story has its own unique sort of style and tone. And yet none of them feel alien in the grander anthology, you know, and I think that that's really a credit to the film and uh, the filmmakers because we've all seen those anthology films where there's one or two that just sort of like sticks out like a sore thumb. But this is this is an innate sort of magic. You're right. All of these stories in their own way are vastly different. And yet they all feel like they belong. I think you and I know that we could go on and on and on because we both fucking love Creep Show. Oh my God. You know, Michael, I had the one sheet in my bedroom. I don't think that's probably any surprise, but like, as we've discussed on the show before, I love the one sheet for this poster. Oh yeah, for this movie. By the way, uh, one sheet is an industry term for those of us in the business of exhibition for movie poster. Uh, So if you didn't know what a one sheet is, it's the movie poster. And the movie poster for Creep Show was so great. And it was also used on the VHS cover, which I had the VHS and I wore it out. Yeah, so I, I think that this film is just one of those movies that's near and dear to our heart. And we have two guests who I know are as obsessed as we are and and in love with it as we are. And I love that both our guests, Michael, are masters of illusion. And luckily our first guest not only knows magic, but understands the magic of this movie, which is why I asked him to join us today. You know him because he is the host and star of television shows and live tours, and he's a master of illusion. He's Michael Carbonaro, and he's here to talk to us about Creep Show right now.
Welcome back, listeners. Of course, you can't have a cult film without the cult members who make it up. And luckily, today we're joined not just by an avowed fan of Creepshow, but he's known the world round as a master magician and the star of the celebrated television series, The Carbonaro Effect. His cunning illusions and comedic stylings continue to wow audiences both on screen and on the road. Beyond the world of magic, he's appeared on a number of television programs, including 30 Rock, Grey's Anatomy, and The Wizards of Waverly Place. What's more, cult cinema fans know him as the star of the beloved queer comedy, Another Gay Movie. Currently, he's on tour with his live show, Carbonaro, Lies on Stage, and will soon be taking up a multi-month residency in Las Vegas at the Penn & Teller Theater at The Rio. Please welcome magician, actor, improv artist, and so much more, Michael Carbonaro. Hi, Michael. Hi. Wow, great to be here. What an intro. Well, thank you. Thanks for agreeing to talk about one of our favorite movies. It's special to have you here for a special episode. Thank you. And I'm very happy to be here. And it's it's interesting to bring me in being a magician, too, because, you know, this was one of those movies that Tom Savini did the effects on. And I always mark Tom Savini's special effects book as my very first magic book. Ah. Well, why don't we go back in time then? When did you first discover Creepshow? Was it because of Tom Savini or did that come later? I knew about it before Tom Savini. I must have seen a video of it. Yeah, I, I think we rented it. My mom used to let us watch. When I think back the years that we watched things, it's, it's really frightening to me because I know I watched Creepshow 2 live in the theater by myself and I must have been... 11 years old, 12 years old when Creepshow 2 came out. So like, and I saw aliens with my mom in the movie theater. So I remember, you know, we used to be allowed to rent whatever we wanted in the genre of horror, except for like Poltergeist was off limits for some reason. And uh, The Exorcist. And we weren't allowed to watch the pole dancing scene in Flashdance. <laughs> I, I love that Poltergeist was off limits, though, because of all the movies you just listed that you saw, it's the one that's PG. I know. I don't know what it was. Maybe it's the marijuana and the, I don't know. Parents were really heavily warned about Poltergeist because it was PG. And so there was a lot of backlash around families going to see Poltergeist. And then there was a whole media blitz about the PG rating and how wildly inappropriate it was. And that specifically Poltergeist was designed to horrify children and mothers. You know, like it, it's it's designed mm -hmm. to tap into our most primal fears as, as children, you know, being ripped out of our safe space out of our home, out of our bedroom and taken from our family, right? And, and, and parents. So I bet your mother, because my parents were kind of obsessively like, you're not allowed to see that. You're not allowed. Well, yeah. and, then, and then I saw it a million times. I watched it repeatedly because I was obsessed with it, you know? Oh, yeah. um, so, but Creepshow, in many ways, I feel like because of its sort of comic book nature, you know, it sort of plays in a childlike way. You know, it's 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 cartoony. Absolutely. I loved creep show from the time I was a kid. And so I guess um, the next big question is, you know, because it's uh, an anthology film, could you rate in order your favorite from least favorite to favorite, the stories of creep show? Do you, and if you need a reminder on what they are, I can help you. Going hard early, Peaches. Let's just get into it. I might not be able to go backwards uh, unless you give me a second, because uh, you know, I think of my favorite <laughs> ones. Top one is going to be the crate, because I like oh. the the double story that he's going to go and murder his wife, you know, with this monster. And then I would say, 
my least favorite is the Father's Day cake. I'm sorry. I know. <laughs> Peaches just made a face that you can't see. Yeah, the, the podcast audience can't see my visceral facial response yeah. to that. Yes. But go go ahead. Go ahead. I, I don't judge. I think you just did. Um, <laughs> okay, so then, uh, then I would say... Second favorite after the crate would be the drowning. Gosh, they're all so good. God, that is a really this is a really hard question. They are all fantastic. They are yeah. really all fantastic in their own way. But I would say, God, they all hit me in such a different way, and that's why I love this anthology. They they really are different areas of fear as well. I'd say like one of the ones. Uh, I'm I'm not answering your question. I'm dodging it. But one of the one of the ones that like viscerally scared me the most in there was the the Stephen King segment with the... Oh. I have this thing about horror movies. I love horror. I love monsters. And nothing really frightens me except for things like, like in Creepshow 2, the slime on the lake scared mm. me. Um, right. Anything that's like a, a faceless, like sort of like addiction or substance or the contagion of that stuff on his fingers, that just like gives me the wicked wild heebie-jeebies. Uh, uh, the idea of getting that just all over. Um, so that one scared me the most, but I'm the biggest fan of the of the crate, and I guess that just leaves our um, what did I leave? The the cockroaches is fun, but that might actually be my least favorite. The cockroaches, cockroaches, and, and you mentioned the drowning one, and and it was a tough question, and I apologize for putting so early in the podcast. I'm just putting you on the spot, but I do think with an anthology show like Creep Show, what's so wonderful about it is people do have favorites, and they're not really always the same, right? Like I, of course, as a, as a campy queen, as a kid loved the Father's Day one and you know the the whole um character of Bedelia and the and the, the snobby bitchery of it you know and just how cunty it was and, and you know just so it was so over the top but it's funny that you bring up the um Jordy Verrill one the, the as a scary one because you're right that sort of organic horror you know it plays to a particular kind of fear whereas i always thought of that as the funniest one like i just loved that mm. stephen king was so so comedic and here here's our first real serious look at the master of horror right like here right. he is the writer himself the guy who's given us all nightmares with all of these wonderful books and novels and of course by that time we had already had carrie and and the shining and you know he was household name and he and he gets on screen and he is freaking hilarious well let's yeah. be honest too it's a bold move because it is also the only story where the character is entirely alone so we mm -hmm. have this person who is not known really for acting at all right carrying, carrying that whole thing carrying that whole thing and i wanted to dig into that a little bit do you think part of why the lonesome death of jordy verrill lands so much is not just because of the icky body horror that that plays out but because of that isolation, is that one of the things that really sticks with you on that? Because he's alone the whole time. Yes, I think that plays into the horror. I'm not sure if that's what got me the most frightened about it. But it's that's a it's such a wonderful setup for a horror like that. Because even today when you try and make a horror movie, you're so stuck with all the connections that we have in the world. And you're always like, like cell phones, it's like we, you got to make them work in horror movies. They're always like, why wouldn't they just call somebody? That, but the idea of just being off on this farm by yourself in the middle of this horrible situation is definitely frightening in a shining type way, that isolation. 
segment has one of the funniest lines where he just says, you know, meteor shit uh, or, you know, like <laughs> yeah. it, it, he he's he is wonderful. But there is I think a horror of it in some ways is that Stephen King as an actor, not only is he comedic, but he's immensely likable as this like hillbilly. Totally. And so there's sort of this sadness to what he's going through. It's such a bummer. And so even though it's like this cartoon and it's so silly and so campy, he actually gives it some weight in his likability, you know, because you actually feel sad for him as he's going through that. And, yeah. and it makes it kind of real. It does make it real. And it, I think he kind of, I don't want to say passes because he's actually fantastic in the segment. Yeah. But like it passes because of the cartoony storybook nature of the whole movie, which is interesting because other segments have some incredible performances of like Leslie Nielsen. Leslie Nielsen's fright and panic and, you know, and we know him as a comedic actor, but his realism during the drowning segment, he is so good yeah. as an actor in, in that. And again, kind of a lonely situation. You're alone and you're something's creeping on you. And I didn't mean to paraphrase the wrong segment there, but like he's alone, like and you feel like something's in the house. It's a lot of like as an actor, like going into a situation where it's like it's just you by yourself going through this situation. That's a hard thing to pull off. And I think he's like master at that. And so is. Fritz Weaver, when he is doing the crate segment, he's diabolical. That is a, a, a fully fleshed acting performance, like of this professor totally breaking down and like going bonkers over the fright that he just saw. And, and I wonder if that was Romero or like who coached them? Because oftentimes in movies, you see people like not dealing with situations in the way that they probably would. Like that's how you would break down if something like that happened where you saw this horrible monster in a crate under the stairs. You would go psychotic. And he, yeah. he turns into a blubbering psychotic mess. But his his performance is just much more grounded than, say, King's, but King's kind of flies in it too because you have that whole cartoon world. You're speaking to something that probably doesn't get tapped into when discussing Creepshow enough, or even at all, is that that lens by which cartoony equals authenticity. Because... When people talk about Creepshow, they often talk about the fact that it's evocative of EC Comics and, and sort of the heightened reality of comic books. But sometimes the over-the-top reaction, the absurd reaction, watch the news. That's how we act. And so I think that maybe that's where the fear in this movie comes from is we're kind of laughing because we're like, haha, it's a cartoon, but deep down we know it's true. Absolutely. And I think that you also tapped into the whole idea of like Brechtian storytelling and experimental theater. There's a license to be more afraid because we aren't bothered to have to believe the realism. We're told right at the beginning, like, this is a storybook. It's cartoony. The lights just turn red or green or this gobo is on the background. So like, we know we don't have to believe this is a real documentary style film. And like with that, you have the freedom to not have to suspend your disbelief. You know, it's a story. So you get like, in a way, when you read a story, you could be more frightened than seeing a movie version of it. This kind of is a hybrid of both of those. You have the freedom to be more afraid because you don't have to worry about wondering if it's real because you're, you're told it's not. Some of the realness uh, actually in this surreal world, and you brought up Leslie Nielsen, incredible. Of course, Leslie Nielsen's episode also features uh, Ted Danson. Like we're talking huge, iconic movie stars who, you know, they were they were big when they were cast in the film, but then they were huge after that, you know, just giant careers. I mean, Ted Danson is still working and is as successful now 
as ever before. You know, he's never stopped working. He's incredible. And the crate, you brought up Fritz Weaver, who's amazing. But also in that same episode is Hal Holbrook, another iconic, incredible actor. But the performance I really, of course, think is so delicious is given by Adrian Barbeau in that episode who plays Hal Holbrook's wife. And she's a total drunk. And, you know, she's a genre icon, right? Um, And if you look at all of the episodes, and we're just rattling off some of the stars of this movie, because, of course, it has a huge cast because it's, it's a different short film with a different cast over and over again. I think that those performances, that that walking the line, people think camp is easy or or cheap, or they and they often dismiss it. But these performances are camp, but they're grounded in reality. And these actors know how to play this right. You right, know, especially Adrian Barbeau. I just love her. I love Adrian Barbeau in this, and I think she's amazing. And it's like uh, it's it's just become legendary. One of the hardest things to do as an actor is play drunk. Yeah. It really is hard to play drunk. Now I just want to plug her into this movie. It's Catherine O'Hara <laughs> in Waiting for Guffman at the Chinese restaurant is like the most amazing drunk ever. It's so grounded and so real. What about Elizabeth Taylor and Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? I mean, maybe we, maybe we should just um, I, have... I, I think she might have just been drunk. <laughs> right. <laughs> Actually, touche. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, and, and as we all know, because we're in the entertainment industry, there are people who appear drunk on camera sometimes when they're not supposed to. Right. Um, you know, so, so it's not out of the question that some of these actors aren't actually, you know, acting drunk. You know, they, they, well, we know, you know, some yeah. actors actually play drunk in the way they do it is they literally get drunk. Streetcar is also, uh, yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, there's ton- like a lot of great examples, but I completely agree that playing drunk is really, really hard. I just love Adrian Barbeau. Well, we're talking about bold performances in front of the camera, but in the beginning of this conversation, the first name that you brought up as part of your reverence for this movie was Tom Savini. And I think that it's really important to dig into the work that Tom Savini did here because Savini is a magician of special effects, you know, as you said, and, you know, as many people have said. But the work he does here is very different than he did elsewhere for Romero or on Friday the 13th because the gore in those movies, I would say, is grounded more in reality, whereas this is fantastical. I wondered if you would maybe speak a little bit to his work on this film. Yeah, um, the specter in the window is maybe the best thing in the whole movie. Mm-hmm. And the creep show poster, by the way, is my favorite po- horror movie poster of all time. Absolutely love it. And, and that specter in the window, this beautiful puppet, I became so obsessed with the idea of being a hooded skeleton after seeing that. Like, all I wanted to do for Halloween was find the perfect way to be the ultimate, like, skeleton with a hood. And maybe also from Clash of the Titans, there was also that scene when he goes across the boat and there's that hooded skeleton. Anyway, I was obsessed obsessed with those. But that's like my favorite thing Tom did in that. Uh, And also the magic behind some of the special effects of like being able to make Fluffy walk by like having this like sliding floor panel. Like looking into the wild special effects of that, like the tricks, the illusion technology, when Stephen King blows his head off once he's become the complete weed monster, they really shot a gun into, you know, he's laying backwards through the wall and, you know, his legs are real so that his legs can move and animate. And he shot a gun into just a blank costume part that could blow up. I mean, it's so 
dangerous. I mean, maybe it was squibs or whatever, but I remember reading that special effects as they just shot the gun that way. His whole philosophy is always to use as much of the real actor as possible. And, I, and you know, and he says, you know, if you're going to slit somebody's throat, a lot of people's first thought is like, oh, we'll get a fake head and we'll take a knife and cut its throat. He like says that in Scream Greats. But but if you could find another way to actually use the actor's face is the, the head on the platter in the Father's Day segment. You know, it's her real head through the plate, but you'd see that there's nothing underneath it. And it's literally just a piece of black fabric that he's using to cover her body and just working with the cinematography so that you see the the zombie father standing there and it looks like there's nothing underneath that. You know, today we just use CGI or whatever, but he's using like all these old magic techniques and like really finding ways to make them look as realistic as possible with the the limitations of the technology then, which make them better. Absolutely. And th- there was this sort of of era of horror in the 80s that like I of course as a kid uh, who grew up in the 80s um, you know was born in the 70s grew up in the 80s and like this was my introduction to horror I now look at it especially when you look at documentaries like In Search of Darkness and realize like this was a total renaissance period for the genre this was a total redefining of the genre and this film in particular had these sort of giant heavyweights who were in their own universe titans you know george romero was already so famous and so successful you know for his zombie films obviously but also films like martin and you know just all of his movies and him coming on board and partnering with stephen king who was such a successful novelist. You know, even though this was a long, long time ago, these people were at the top of their game. And of course, Tom Savini following Friday the 13th was just so sought after. And he really did redefine kind of special effects and makeup for horror movies. This is such a showcase of these three people And it kind of comes together in this sort of perfect way. It's just like this perfect movie. And since you bring up the the creep, you know, with the sequel, they animated the creep. And then they sort of created that other creepy character. At the end. Like, yeah, like a trash man or something. Throwing the comic books. And that's yes. Tom. That's and Tom. That's Tom. Yeah. Yes, yeah, yes, yeah. yes. That's actually Tom. So I was actually going to bring bring up a, a different cameo. But do you know who plays the little boy in the, the prologue of the epilogue? I do. Do you, Michael? No. That little boy's novelist, Joe Hill, who is the son of Stephen King. Yes. Yeah. Get lost. Oh Isn't my that God. great? I never knew that. And you know, he has such the perfect wicked little face. In yeah. this, in Creepshow. It is stunningly perfect. You couldn't cast a better kid. Oh my God. That's so cool to know. Yeah, and if you go and you look at Joe Hill today, who looks a lot like his father did, you know, um, at the same age, you also go, oh, that is that kid. (laughs) You can totally see that, you know, it's him, you know. But um, I didn't know that for years and years. Okay, so going into this being a renaissance, yeah, I have some questions that you may be able to answer here. Oh, first off, Tales from the Crypt, direct ripoff of Creepshow, right? Like this isn't Creepshow what started the idea of doing a Tales from the Crypt with the Crypt Keeper as the host? Well, in, in the 70s, there was a Tales from the Crypt uh, anthology film that was adapted by uh, Amicus Pictures starring Joan Collins and Peter Cushing. And, and so the EC comics had been adapted into feature films in the past with, with Tales from the Crypt and then I think subsequently Vault of Terror 
or Vault of Horror, someone will correct me if I got the, the name wrong. Uh, in terms of actually going to the page and doing that hyper-colored comic right. stuff, right. I think this is where it begins because then- That was my second question. The first one was I just wanted to know if it's just the idea of having like the rotted Crypt Keeper host taking you through these stories was an advent of Creepshow or Tales from the Crypt or something even before that. Which... I mean, it's, it's definitely a reference to the comics, but in terms of on film, I think it's got to be Creepshow because if you go and look at these British movies, it's like some stodgy British guy who's just like, welcome to my crypt. Right. You, like, you know, he's like just stepped off the Globe Theater stage and, right. and was doing the wraparound. Right. So the Crypt Keeper kind of is like a, I always thought of a spinoff, we'll call it, of the creep. Seems yeah. like it. I right. think okay. so, yeah. And then that was my other question about the the panels and like taking it through a storybook, I'm just even thinking, you know, outside of horror, just in, in the cinemascape, what film had ever done that before? And they do it so well with taking you from the picture and then it being the perfect frame of the film and then it coming to life. It's really cool as hell. And I don't know if that had ever been done before. And you know it was harder then because now we sure. would just do that with computers. But that was all like 35 millimeter film spliced over XYZ. That had to have been a lot of work. Oh, yeah. I think you had a group of people, men, who grew up reading the actual EC comics. You know, they were horror fans who grew up reading Tales from the Crypt. And so Creep shows actually their, like, filmic-loving homage, doing a parody of something they, they grew up loving, which right. is ta Tales from the Crypt. Um, but I think you're right. I think the way they did it, the, the way they made it filmic, the way they integrated the whole wraparound and the, the Crypt Keeper as the host, I think they were innovative. And then, as you mentioned, it was then then duplicated and knocked off, you know. Right. Uh, we had, you know, movies like Tales from the Dark Side. We had, um, well, Tales from the Crypt, you know, the TV show yeah. and the movies. Um, so, yeah, I, I think Creep Show it recreated and redefined what could be done right. with horror movies. And I think it could even say it got a little, maybe, you know, a slice of, Twilight Zone in there to say we could take these twisted tales, short ones, and like sort of play them out and put them in an anthology. Well, it's interesting too because everything kind of is cyclical, right? If Creepshow being a loving homage to EC Comics then inspired the team that created Tales from the Crypt, Richard Donner, Robert Zemeckis, all those guys, to make Tales from the Crypt. It goes on to huge success on HBO. And now cycling back around on Shudder, we've got the Creepshow television series, which you know this generation thinks of as a new Tales from the Crypt. So it's all full circle. Right, right, right. One thing I absolutely love about Creepshow, I'm gonna throw in randomly, is how much I, for my own show, like ripped off <laughs> pieces from it. Like for the Carbonaro effect when I was doing my hidden camera magic TV show where I'm doing like candid camera magic show for anyone who hasn't seen it. I'm setting up real people in real situations and fooling them with magic tricks that look like real moments that are happening and I'm playing none the wiser. Well, the crate, you know, was I, I used the framework of the crate like two times like in my show. You know, there's one segment in, in my TV show where me and this guy are going through a warehouse and we find an old crate and it starts making noise in it and the two of us pick it up and we can hear somebody inside of it like talking and then a finger while we're carrying it sticks out of the crate a human finger and the guy freaks out and we drop it and then we we take the lid off the top of the crate and inside is this pig with like a human's clothes and we start to like piece <laughs> together that this was like a we called it the pig man segment, that it was like a man who turned into a pig. But um, I really wanted that to be a wolf. It was I wrote it as a wolf man story, but then we're like, we can't get a wolf 
we can't use a wolf in a box. Right, right. So right. they were like, let's make it funny and make it a pig. But um, so it, it was like we found all this other stuff in the box that was like, oh, he was on an expedition and he must have found this voodoo doctor and, you know, the guy turned him into a pig. But anyhow, so I stole it that. And then another time I did a segment where there was a crate in an airport you know, me and this guy are going through old baggage that's been left. And the premise is, you know, it's late night at a real airport that we got. Uh, that was a shutdown airport in Chicago. And we brought him out there. So it's a legit environment and told him that if people leave their bags for more than three months, we have to put them on the truck and, and send them off to the warehouse. So we're going through these old bags. And one of them is this wooden crate. And it starts making noise. And inside it, we open it up. There's a raven, a legit live raven in a cage couple bits happen with the raven. I leave the guy alone with the, the, the box closed and suddenly it starts rattling and the door flings open to the crate and the raven has become a human. So it's like <laughs> this, like, and legit had this like raven man, really weird like performer, like contortionist guy with like black sclera contact lenses and like feathers over his junk, but otherwise <laughs> naked, running out of the box. And the guy like legit thought that this raven turned into a person. So I stole that uh, twice. And then the other one again is the, you know, the Stephen King segment with the moss. One of my favorite bits on Carbonaro Effect uh, was called Contagious Mushrooms where I took somebody mm. out on a nature trail and we found this weird mushroom and I, I can't remember what the first part of it was, but suddenly there was one, I, I touched it with the tip of my foot and then we saw there, there was one growing off the tip of my shoe and I took my shoe off and, and then they were like on the edge of my glasses where I touched it and then they're all over my back and then the shoe was covered with them and the guy was like totally freaked out and it was like a, <laughs> a live performance of literally that same thing just with mushrooms. So it was such an inspiration for those magical scenarios for me. I love, love, love when a cult movie that we absorb, especially as young people, it bakes inside our brains. And then as creative adults, when you can kind of look back and go like, and sometimes, I mean, it sounds like you are very aware of the inspiration, but I've had it happen where like recently I, I, I rewatched Popcorn on Shudder and I hadn't seen it for a million years. And as I was watching it, I was like, oh, okay. That's where I got that from, right. All About Evil. Like, cause I knew I watched it as a kid. I had yep. the poster. You know, I just hadn't remembered it. Then other uh, references, like anything from Poltergeist, they live freely in my head and are very much alive. And it sounds like Creepshow for you is something that has always occupied space in your brain. Yeah. Has inspired you. I think the way it came was sort of more like what you're saying. I, You know, ah. now in retrospect, I can say I did it. But I'm sort of like, what if we found a crate and inside there was a sound <laughs> and then it was this weird guy. And then later on, you know, I'm like, what if this like mushroom is, you know, and then I'm like, oh, ah. I know where I'm getting that from. Yeah. That's been that fear of that contagious thing. And like, I sometimes draw it backwards to it. Yeah. Which is really why you are an ideal guest for this episode because you're really proving how when we embrace these movies, they become kind of part of our consciousness and our DNA. Yeah. Uh, and as we're wrapping up, that leads me to a question I like to ask all of our guests who, who uh, live with these movies and love these movies. Cult films are movies that we see and we carry with us our whole lives. But as you know, um, our relationships with the things that we love change over time. So how has your relationship with Creepshow changed over the years beyond just inspiration, if at all? I would say it really has fermented. It's one of those touchstones to me that when I think of it, it makes me happy. There's a nostalgia factor. There's a, knowing that it was such such a an inspiring gem of my childhood that ignited so many of my thoughts and things that I wanted to become. And so I, I have like nostalgia tied with when I watch it now, 
it has a new layer of uh, uh, now I'm looking into the performances and being able to say like, oh my gosh, that's that's Ed Harris and that's Ted Danson and that's Leslie Nielsen. Like I wasn't aware of that as a kid. I knew I just saw those people. So that adds a different layer to it. But it always, I would say, just reignites a loving inspiration and stuff. <laughs> Yeah. For someone who's gone on to have such a successful career being a magician and, and creating illusion, and then for us to be able to bring you on the show and not know when, when you came on that Tom Savini and the illusions he was creating, you know, for movies is something that inspired you or piqued your interest that sparked that curiosity or excited you. I just love that. I think that's so great. And it shows you, you know, the power of cinema these movies live on forever and ever and ever. And so here's a question for you. Have you ever gotten to meet Tom Sabini? Have you ever gotten to talk to him about that? Because I'm no. sure he'd love to know it. You no, know, I, I, I've only met him like at a convention once and was like quickly like I, I do a TV show and uh, I like just became a kid again. <laughs> where I was just like an idiot. But I've never right. gotten to like really sit and jam with Tom. I, I yeah. want to make that connect. I, maybe he'll listen to this. Who knows? Yeah. He sniffs out all that stuff. I'm sure he would love to know it because, you know, that is so special that like, you know, that was sparked in you, you know, and I think a lot of us feel that way. Yeah, man. I, all the things that Tom did with, you know, I, I, I took lessons from that movie, like putting the real maggot on the father zombie when he came out, like on top of this wonderful special effect, really cramming real dirt and having a live couple of maggots squirming around. That just you can't not believe that that's a real thing because you can't beat organic. So I like that lesson I use all the time in magic and, and in whenever I do is like adding just that little bit of whatever you can do that's real, you know, don't get fake slime, just use real slime if there's such a thing or whatever, you know, like you wanna use the real thing. From taking lessons of, of maggots to using the real thing to all of the stuff that you've applied to your own career, let's, let's look at what you're doing right now. You're about to take on Las Vegas Tell yeah. us a little bit about that. That's amazing. The, the Penn and Teller Theater. Come on. That's awesome. It's crazy. To say that, you know, Penn and Teller were an inspiration is an, is a total understatement. Like growing up as a kid, they they just were it. You know, they were a way to be magic, but yet like really intelligent and witty and snarky and funny and like clever. They never agree. Like Penn usually kind of hates magicians. Teller has all these like magician friends and Penn kind of like hates magicians. And for, for a long time, I never really cracked my relationship with Penn, but I became Penn pals with Teller for a long time after he saw me and Peter do our needle swallowing performance. And we, we became friends and close and jammed all the time. And then all of a sudden I went to see their show once and backstage Penn was really like engaging with me. And I'm like, what was it? You know, and I, I found out his kids watched my show. And mm -hmm. I think once his kids saw my show, he started looking at me a little differently. And then we found a great relationship. And it feels incredible to be like the person that like they've never done anything like this before. They're going to Australia for seven weeks and they're handing the keys of the theater over to me to to do my show or whatever I want. And they're just super generous and amazing. And they're like, we love you. We support you. Would you like to do it? You know, I was just driving with Teller when he came to L.A. We were like going to go have dinner with Erica Larson from the Magic Castle and he was like, hey, we're going to Australia for seven weeks and nothing's happening in our theater. Should there be? And I was like, yes. He's like, all right, let's do it. That is like the ultimate 
I mean, I, I, you know, what would it take for me to hand over the keys to like, you know, something I'm really, I've worked really hard to build, you know, it would take a lot. So that's like, you, you kind of gotten the ultimate uh, form of flattery and, and, right. and show of trust. And um, so if folks, so you're heading to Vegas, you'll be there for seven weeks, it sounds that's like. That's right. May 26th through July 10th, doing Thursday through Sunday. Oh, that's shows. awesome. It'll be fun. Yeah. Yeah. Fabulous. Oh, that's so exciting. Good for you. Congratulations. Yes. Yeah. On all okay. your success, you yes. know, and I'm a fan of yours and I'm just so glad that, you know, we were able to talk with you and um, get you because we know you're very, very busy. So thank you so much for coming on the Midnight Mass podcast. Absolutely. My pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you, Michael. I wore my Creepshow t-shirt. Oh, you did wear your <laughs> Creepshow t-shirt. Underneath. It was a final reveal, everybody. I showed them. As yeah. a magician is wont to do. <laughs> that was our fantastic interview with the very special guest, Michael Carbonara who uh, was just so great because he took time out of his very busy schedule. As you heard, he's a very busy and important magician. But what a lovely, lovely chat we were able to have with him about his love for Creepshow and how it's informed so much of his work over the years. And I know that that magic is what we, we call it often, but there's actually a more professional term for this field of study. And I know Michael's well aware of this term. I, I don't want to mean to put you on the spot, Michael, but what is that word? It's prestidigitation. Michael Carbonar was a prince of prestidigitation. <laughs> Michael, I, Michael, that is not how you pronounce it. It is it's, how you, it, it's it is. prestidigitation, not prestamasturbation <laughs> or whatever you said. It's prestidigitation. Peaches okay. is, is giving me guff because I told her that the reason I didn't <laughs> say it in the Michael interview is I always fuck it up when I try and say it to a magician. And what do you always say? Presto masturbation. Presto ma masturbation. Presto <laughs> masturbation. <laughs> and then you pull your pants down and, you know, a, a problem occurs. So we're, we're not going to go there. Wait, not to completely derail, but since <laughs> since you went there and, and pulling pants down for magic, have you seen the new Kids in the Hall that just debuted on Amazon? No, but I, I didn't even know there was one. There is. They came back and did an eight episodes. And oh. Speaking of cult, I mean, we could do a whole thing on them and Brain I Candy at them. some point. But yes. there is an episode where Scott Thompson as Buddy Cole goes to the last glory <laughs> hole and there is magic involved. Oh, so I think uh, you will appreciate it. So that's my sidebar. If you love insane cult comedy, Canadians and queerness. There's something creepy about Scott Thompson, let's face it. And, uh, you know, he, he could fit into this episode. Anytime we could work in T Scott Thompson, I'm, I'm, I'm here for it. Absolutely. We need to get him on the show at some point. Oh, God. He, I, I really adore him. Again, we don't mean to get derailed, but I saw him at SF Sketchfest before the pandemic. And my God, he delivers. He does not disappoint. As a lifelong fan, this was the first time I saw him, so. Speaking of delivering 100%, Creepshow is truly that anthology. She is that girl in the world of horror. Well done. Thank well you. Done. I, I do my yeah. best. Uh, you know what, what? What is interesting, and we did talk about this a little bit with Michael, and uh, we talk about this as well with our next guest, how Creepshow did spawn an anthology. Uh, not an anthology, a franchise. We get Creepshow mm -hmm. 2, we get Creep Show 3. There is a series on Shudder. But I think we would be remiss to uh, not point out that from Creep Show, we also got Tales from the Dark Side because that's the uh, television series that Romero and King went off utilizing this very similar format. 
uh, to do weekly anthology horror. And that was on, went on for a handful of seasons, including episodes starring Divine, of all people. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think Tales from the Dark Side is actually the, the title of the original EC comic that they grew up reading. Isn't that right? Well, I think it was Tales from the Crypt. So, Oh, maybe it was Tales from the yeah. Crypt, which we know also became such a fabulous, fabulous TV show. No, it's interesting because uh, the EC Comics, there was Tales from the Crypt, uh, Vault of Horror, Weird Science, which of course became its own movie that John Hughes did, even though that's very loosely EC Comics. And then there were a few others, but no, those were the ones that were kind of the standouts. Can I just tell you that like, I kind of was vaguely familiar that Creepshow 3 existed, but I don't think I've ever seen it. So I'm guessing it's not very good. I think it's sort of one of those deals where the rights to the name belonged to somebody and it was made without the express permission of King or Romero. So it's a sequel in name and legal rights, but not to that team. It's a bastard. Yeah, and I've heard Stephen King say that they always viewed the Tales from the Dark Side movie as their personal creep show three. Oh, that makes sense, actually. Yeah. That's another one sheet I had uh, as a youth. Um, I had the Tales from the Dark Side poster, which is also excellent. Although, between all of them, creep show two poster, not great. The first creep show poster, you just can't beat it. It's just classic. You really can't. One of the things that I really, really love, I mean, the creep is is iconic. And on that poster in the box office, so cool. But both of our guests mentioned the creep's first appearance in the movie as that puppet outside the boy's window. And one thing that no one ever talks about is how much she fucking serves. She's like vamping out there. Oh, yeah. She's amazing. Full on puppet with a fucking Beyonce fan blowing through her cape and everything. Like she's really serving. And another thing that we, we touched on briefly, but I think we should circle back to is that Tom Savini, who became the poster child for great 80s effects makeup, special effects makeup, and of course has gone on to have his own school and, you know, got his start with George Romero, but also did, you know, so many of the slasher movies and so many big film projects that we know and love. Tom Savini makes an appearance in this film at the end, which I think is a hilarious and lovely cameo. But I have to say, I've not had many experiences with Tom Savini, so I can't say for sure or whatever, but I have to tell you, and I hope it, I hope if he wouldn't appreciate knowing this, that this gets back to him as a kid, I was so hot for Tom Savini. He was sexy, but I think part of the sexiness was that I knew he probably wouldn't appreciate my male adoration, my little boy adoration. You know, it's funny when I lived in Pittsburgh, I crossed paths with Tom a lot, but of course I, I did he gay bash you. No, okay. <laughs> I don't think we, like, I, I'm going to go on the record and say we didn't really get to know each other well enough for him to have had the opportunity. I just used to cross paths with him and be like, Oh, holy shit. There's Tom Savini. But I think that he has been doing the convention circuit long enough. And he is a man who makes makeup and does makeup. And even though it's gore makeup, he's got to be aware that there's some crossover. And I love that we got a chance to celebrate his contribution to horror in this episode, because when uh, we did our previous episode, we talked about his remake of Night of the Living Dead. And I don't know when we would have gotten an opportunity to really dig into his contribution to special effects. So I'm glad Michael really dug into that and that we're talking about it now. But as far as his queer crossover, we may never know. 
it's all part of my Tom Savini fantasy. And I will say that um, not only was he sexy in the eighties, but I don't know if you've seen him lately. He's still like, he's like he's this buff. beefy yeah. buff daddy who still works out and he, he posts thirst shots on his um, Instagram and stuff, which I love. And, you know, he's like a year younger than my parents, you know, which is so <laughs> shocking to me. I don't want to make it sound like Tom Savini has done anything wrong or, or problematic that I'm aware of. I just feel like growing up, he, represented a sort of macho-ness and horror where I didn't really feel necessarily welcome or accepted. And as a drag queen who has appeared at the same conventions, some of them that he has, I've never had the nerve, so it's really my fault, I've never had the nerve to go up and tell him that I um, used to, you know, use him, him. Uh, as my own personal shower nozzle masturbation material as a youth. Oh, sure. So, you know, Tom Savini, master of makeup, master of gore. Speaking of people who bring gore to their makeup, we should probably get into our next guest. She is a lovely, lovely queen, uh, an icon of horror drag, monster drag. And really, I have to say, one of my biggest problems with drag of recent years is that with the proliferation of not just drag race, but drag on social media, the internet, you literally have armies of girls that look the same, same. or yeah. they look like this girl or that girl. I always applaud any queen, any doll that can come up with a unique look that we haven't seen before, that is signature, that's her own, that's identifiable. And this queen, she nailed it. She really was original when designing her drag style. So without further ado, let's bring on our next special guest. It's the one and only Erica Clash. I am so, so excited because anytime we get to bring one of my sisters on the show, I just love it. And this queen is a dear, dear friend, but you may know her best from season two of Dragula. You know, of course, the Boulet Brothers reality drag show, monster drag competition. And she really showed how unique and special drag can be, drag makeup, and just the vision for what drag can be and at a time when we really need freshness. And so I am a big, big fan of hers, but I know her personally because of her involvement uh, in the Bay Area drag scene, where she at one time lived and just made a huge, huge splash. Uh, we worked together on my Terror Vault show. She was a part of that cast. And I just adore her. One of the sweetest, most talented queens you could know. It was her suggestion that we cover Creep Show. So let's bring her on without further ado. It's the fabulous Erica Clash. Yay. Hello, hello. 
Hi. Is it Father's Day yet? <laughs> oh my gosh. I'll, well, I'll make yeah. sure you have your cake, Erica. <laughs> As Peaches said, we are so excited to have you on the show. And we were so excited that you brought us this movie. I mean, of course, Creep Show is one of those tentpole horror movies that if you exist as a horror fan in the space for long enough, you run into this movie because it's not only good, it's a movie that loves a love of horror. It, it, it totally evokes a certain era, a certain kind of comic book, a certain style of horror. And I'm so excited to dig into all of that with you because you yourself do visual representations of horror. And that's kind of what Creepshow is all about. But before we get into all of that, when did you first discover this movie? So I actually ended up watching the second creep show first. Um, my parents and I saw it together. They got like the DVD from like Costco or something in the mid-ish 2000s. And we sat down, we watched Creep Show 2, which was one experience. But then I think right after we, we saw the first one. And as much as I enjoyed the second one, the first one really grabbed me. I didn't know Argento at the time, but like the Argento lighting. Yeah. Um, and it was just really, really fun. That's so interesting that you bring up Argento because we hadn't yet discussed that on the show. Um, and I think it's a really good point because of the actual color scheme and the way that the, the, the a lot of the creep show is lit, especially when they sort of segue into the more comic, you know, those those final frames where they they change the lighting on the characters and stuff. Um, and it's like, oh, my God, that's totally Argento, you know, which, you know, I guess is comic-esque. Yeah, so good observation. Well, and it makes sense because Argento and Romero would have worked together by this point on Dawn of the Dead, so I think right. there would be that cross-pollination. 1982, so that was two years after Inferno, which was like, just like Suspiria had that sort of signature lighting, so yeah, it's totally in the consciousness, I guess. Which I do think we need to take a brief diversion and say that you did a series of Argento-inspired looks Yes. That were so awesome. And um, I know that, you know, we we previously did an Argento episode, but since since we're talking about him, I just wanted to bring that up and, and say how awesome it was to see your your interpretation of his world through your drag. Thank you. I had a huge like immersion period with him in high school and like his vibrant use of color really inspires my style of drag. Um, so I love that. Well, what we'll do is um, we always like to give nuggets uh, to our Patreon subscribers of things that are readily available on the internet should they not, <laughs> uh, you know, want to pay for the Patreon. But we think you should pay for the Patreon and su support the podcast. And then we hand deliver these nuggets. You don't have to do a Google search. We will post them for you. So we will share Erica Clash's Argento-inspired looks um, with her permission, of course. Uh, I'll send on, you on, files. I'll send you, you different oh, versions. So they, they get the best version you exactly. know not even not even compressed you know <laughs> off of the, for the patreon so erica um i would love to know as a spooky queen as someone who went you know on dragula as someone who also is is inspired by uh wider pop culture obviously i think video games and and things that you know are are, are in the pop culture but what is it about creep show do you think because we we talked a lot with michael our, our other guest about how creep show specifically he's able to as an adult go oh my god this illusion i created is inspired by creep show and, and is there anything in your drag world where you're like oh yeah i got that idea where i was inspired by the movie creep show absolutely i mean just the the overall comic book aesthetic you know in 2015 or 16 i did like my very first like like Lichtenstein pop art look. 
Um, Mm -hmm. And ever since then, I've done like different variations on it. My makeup style is very graphic. So recently I've been experimenting a lot with looks kind of inspired by manga panels. So more like black and white as opposed to full color. Um, But just like, again, the vibrant use of color, the way that there's like, you know, certain uh, frame or certain shots are like outlined in this like illustration, like comic book illustration. I just love that. And I also just really love the way that you know, it comments on all these like weird, like really like toxic parts of our culture too. There's a lot of abuse, which you see in a lot of like Stephen King stories, like depictions of abuse and, but it's never like, you can always kind of feel his, his thoughts on the material a little bit, but it's also, he also kind of leaves it there for you to comment or to, to sort of draw your own conclusions from it and like pick out different things about the characters each time. Yeah, I like that you you bring up sort of the darker aspects. Of course, it's a horror film, so there's a lot of darkness here, but you're bringing up the real human darkness, the abuse, the isolation, the alcohol abuse, the substance abuse, all of these feelings of jealousy, et cetera, that permeate a lot of King's work. And what I think is particularly interesting about creepy show is he makes that darkness shine in candy colors. It it is not hidden. And I think it's really important when you're studying this movie to recognize the fact that in a way, Romero and King are saying awful things can happen in broad daylight in front of your eyes. We're so used to culturally with horror or like uncomfortable subjects to have that gray tone the darkness, the, you know, hide everything in shadows. And this movie's like, no, we're going to like put Christmas lights around it and show you something awful. And do you think it's that shift in aesthetic that helps this movie land? I think you kind of hit on something there because what I was sort of getting at was Stephen King presents it to you. George Romero presents it to you. Uh, they don't, they don't lean into it so that it feels like a after school special. Right. Um, <laughs> And there's, but there's also like the sarcasm or like that dark humor about it that I think is very easy comics. You know, George Romero, even in um, Two Evil Eyes that he did with Argento, that's very much like, that's very political. Um, So there's a little bit of that in there. You can kind of sense their feeling towards the material. But again, it's like through the lens of like this comic book story. I love that you bring up the Stephen King component about the humanity uh, that runs through his narratives as far as horror goes. Because what we find is in Stephen King over and over and over again, and I love that some of his novels and stories are not subtle as far as that this goes, you know, like uh, obviously the scariest thing in the in the movie and the book Carrie is not the telekinetic girl it's the bullies and the mother right like those are the monsters right and this is a a, and that was of course Stephen King's big breakout work and this is like a story that he tells over and over and over again right and I love those stories because you know humans typically are the scariest to one another right like these ideas that we're afraid of aliens or afraid of ghosts or afraid of the the serial killer you know are so out there because the chances of us on earth experiencing that you you know, the percentage is low, thankfully, but being abused by our parents, being bullied at school, this is like all relatable content. And I had never thought about creep show in this way, but you're totally right that the scariest stuff still in creep show aren't the monsters in the crate. You know, it's not, it's not the ghost or the, you know, it's the abusive family member, actually abusive family members, abusive partners is kind of the through line of creep show in many ways. 
Good observation, Erica. Yes, now, you're welcome. Yes, I love that because I hadn't really considered that. I, you know, I think because of Tom Savini and the the graphicness of the show and the fun of Creep Show, it still has that core heartfelt connection to humans sucking you know, that we can all relate to. Well, I think something that's overlooked a lot, you know, Stephen King is often referred to as the master of horror. And I don't think any of us would would dispute that with all of the things he's given us pop culturally. But I think the thing that often is left off the table is the fact that he's a master of Americana. The fact yeah. that he has encapsulated this idea of all of the warts and all existence of day-to-day life, the tent poles of American iconography and how they actually oppress us, whether it's the big concepts or the bullies. What I think is genius is, is it's Margaret White, it's Marsha Gay Harden in the Mist. Everybody knew that Excuse lady. Me. Excuse me. Her <laughs> name is Marsha Gay Hardon. Pronounce it. Pronounce it correctly, please. I mean, I would have if you hadn't done that joke a few episodes ago. <laughs> joke. <laughs> One of those That's... jokes that I could hear anytime. <laughs> but anyway, I think that that's kind of really what connects. And I love, I love that we're talking about this with you. With that through line that Peach has mentioned, there is sort of familial strife or relationship strife in all of these. We could dig into all of that nuance, but part of what we like about this is that they're also all fun. So in in that spirit, do you have a favorite of all the stories in this? Yeah, it's close between Father's Day and The Crate. You know, Father's Day for me, it's such a concise, it just gets right to it in the best way. And I love the unspoken family dynamics of Sylvia flirting with Ed Harris, the gay-coded Richard, the the son. You know, I love that stuff. Obviously, um, I think that that one uses the comic book panels the best, in my opinion. Um, but then the crate, I think the characters are like the best written characters of the whole movie for me. Like they're just so dimensional and rich and the situation that they're presented with is just really wild. And it's just really awesome to see the way that they fake you out kind of towards the end. It's like so offbeat and yet it works because it's they still pay it off. I love that you chose those two. Definitely since revisiting Creepshow for this Midnight Mass and also thinking about Creepshow 2, naturally, I've been like trying to rate them in my mind and I keep jumping all around. One that for me is, is I think, sort of always going to be at the top is Father's Day because I think the sort of the the nasty camp of it all and the, the maybe just the emotional abuse and the fact that it's rich people who are so fucked up and I just love Bedelia you know I just love that performance and how great she is and so I, that never wavers and I think that's also because as a kid it was something really fun to latch on to and like you say it's the, it's the first it just grabs you and it kind of says this is the ride we're going to go on and then as a kid the Jordy Verrill one was not one of my favorites, you know, but as an adult, I really, really love it. I love that it's Stephen King. I love that it's body horror. I love that it's, you know, sort of, he's a lovable simpleton in a way. And it's just, it, it's tragic. There's something yeah. really kind of actually sad about it. Well, the fact that he can only imagine a, an amount of $200 for the meteorite being like the <laughs> ultimate goal, you know? Oh, um, sweet. But that's a poverty mentality sometimes, yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, you're just used to living at this level of scale. And I feel like Stephen King, like he's able to write those characters so well without dogging them. 
Yes. You know, like he and he plays it so, so truly and so realistically. All of these actors take their work very seriously, I feel. Even George Romero with like the the East Coast, like rich people that like Pittsburgh, like college town. They know where they come from and like they know how to tell it. And like mm-hmm. even present these characters as flawed without, again, without dogging them. Well, with that in mind, I wanted to ask you about Father's Day. Do you think that it's the booze that wakes up the body? I mean, that's what they say. Oh. Like, you know, she's been going there like every year for seven years. So like, what's the rhyme or reason other than that? I never really thought about it before, but in revisiting it for this episode, and Michael Carbonaro actually mentioned this off air as well, But when they knock the bottle over, if he was kind of a monster, what activates the monster in an abusive parent? Alcohol, you know, in some (laughs) cases. That's the kind of stuff, the little nuance that these years later, I've been watching this movie my whole life. And now I'm like, holy shit, why did I never get that before? This was like a bad alcoholic dad. Now he's the ultimate bad alcoholic dad. That is amazing. I love that because, again, I grew up with a mother who was the adult child of a a, a very abusive alcoholic. Um, I have alcoholism running through my family like crazy. Of course, I'm uh, sober for a reason. You know, so um, my relationship with alcohol and alcoholism and families, I never made that connection before as far as Father's Day goes. But like, oh, yeah, hello. It's there for a reason. We know it's there for a reason. And it is the thing that probably activates, which I love. You know, Friday the 13th, part six, of course, we get that Jason Voorhees being electrocuted back to life (laughs) in that sort of Frankenstein moment. Yeah. Yeah. I never thought about like, oh, it's e- this is even cooler. Fucking alcohol is that powerful. This hardcore abuse of alcoholic could be reanimated, you know, for that thirst, yeah. you know. Oh, that's really genius. Did I did I just miss that my whole childhood? I guess it was always there. I feel like there's th- these things that are subconscious, even if you don't like verbalize it or like say it to yourself. It's like it's in there. Yeah. Yeah. One tidbit that I loved sharing with Michael earlier in the show, um, Erica, that I just have to know if if this is something you know. But the kid who is in the prologue of the epilogue, whose father is also abusive and um, doesn't want him reading the comic books, do you know who that actor is? Yeah, it's Stephen King's son, right? Oh my God, you, Michael's going to feel so stupid. Why would you say <laughs> it like that? <laughs> no, I didn't know either. So in fairness to Michael, I only found out because I was, and I don't think Michael Verratti knew, did you? I was the one who told you in the episode. Oh, okay. Well, I, I, brought, it up. <laughs> I, I brought it up because I knew, because I read right. Wikipedia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I tend to be like a, a huge like trivia person. I have like useless information for days. That's why a lot of people will like love my Twitch channel. <laughs> I'll take take apart like a game from 1992 and just like deep dive it. But that's what Midnight Mass is all about. Absolutely. Yeah. That's what cult movie culture, I think, is about, too, is like loving that thing so much that you know everything about it. Yes. And Joe Hill has grown up in his own right to become, Mm -hmm. you know, a horror writer and and someone who's I mean, obviously, I think it probably helps (laughs) when your father, Stephen King, must be nice. But But, um, but he is quite a brilliant writer. He's talented. Yeah, he is talented. Yeah. Um, I will tell you when I lived in Pittsburgh and this is good for this episode, I just remembered this. I went to a book signing of his. I think it was The Fireman, his book that had just come out. And he said at the signing, he's like, the last time I was here, Tom Atkins was slapping me around. So he was referring to the fact that he was playing the son in Creepshow. So 
Oh, I love that's that. so great. That is so great. At least he embraces it. Cause you know, some people, they don't. He's a great kid. You know, he's, he's actually, you know, he's ridiculous, but it's, he's fabulous in the movie. Nothing to be ashamed of. So Erica, you did mention seeing Creepshow 2 first. And though this episode is about the first movie, we, we do like to wade into the waters of franchises a bit. Do you have a favorite story in the second one? I think it's The Raft. I mean, it's got to be, right? It's like, got to be the raft. Yeah. The hitchhiker is fine. The racial politics is a little strange to me. I don't, I don't know if that was intentional, but the racial politics in there is a little weird. And then again, the racial politics of Chief Woodenhead, like mm-hmm. a white actor in brown face playing uh, Sam White Moon. The theme of it, as I've mentioned, is is sort of get whitey in a way. And, yeah. um, and I like that. <laughs> I like the idea of making white people afraid of their own racism in a way, which is the kind of the theme. And I think Stephen King's intentions are always, I mean, we know what his politics are. You know, he is, he is one of us. He's obviously a progressive. He's also been unapologetically outspoken in a way that, you know, I always admire because when, when these people have these huge, huge followings, especially writers, you can fucking go the JK Rowling route and just, just wildly, you know, disappoint your fans. I don't know who that is. But but you know what I mean? Like, it's just sort of like, and Stephen King has always been a progressive. And so I look at something like um, Creepshow 2 and go, wow, they didn't know how to make that yet. They didn't know how to get into the gritty detail of making it work. So I I think the intention was correct, but I agree with Erica. Um, A lot of it's cringeworthy and flawed. But I do love Thanks for the Ride, Lady. I do. But on the flip side, it's like when you when you like the queer villain, which I often do, you can also step away and go, but this is problematic. And this is why it's problematic. Basically, it's using racism or using homophobia as a weapon of fear. Not a good idea. Right. But I still love it. (laughs) (laughs) I love I love the idea of that fucking white lady being tortured by that guy, you know. I'm just glad she went out after six orgasms. That's, That's you know. That's true. I know that Stephen King can, like, write in his characters' voices as they're talking to themselves. I know that he's done that in, like, Gerald's game, I think. Um, so a few other stories. <laughs> so I did appreciate that. Uh, but, yeah, it was like, uh, went on a little too long. The raft is the one, though. Every film person knows the raft is where it's at. Yeah, I think it's a perfect short horror film that just happens to be in a movie. So one of the things I like to ask when we have drag guests on, because, you know, obviously Midnight Mass is born out of this long history of Peaches doing the Midnight Mass shows. And as far as I know, and I'm pretty studied up on this, Creepshow has never been a Midnight Mass presentation. If Peaches were to do a Midnight Mass live show and cast you, what character in Creepshow would you like to play? I kind of have to say like Adrian Barbeau as Wilma. <laughs> but then again, like it's like either that or like the Crate Monster or the Nathan Grantham. Like one of those three, like they're just iconic to me. I think that makes sense for sure. Who would you be, Peaches? Probably Bedelia. Fair. I mean, I love that kind of character. I find it you know, super fun. I have to say, we haven't talked a lot about the Ted Danson episode. And um, there's something especially scary about Leslie Nielsen. (laughs) And I think it's, you know, really, like, really well done, that episode. It it sort of feels like it has a different tone. The ending, of course, feels very creep show. But the tone of those actors, those incredibly good actors, and especially an actor who's best known for being an absurd 
comic. It's a very creepy, scary little episode. Do you guys agree? Yeah, he he almost uses that like same deadpan monotone, but he you can also see him playing with Harry a lot. Yeah, you know um, the way that he like smacks him a little too hard when he's getting the sand out of his ears. You can see the evil just under the surface, and then. He also has his moments of comedy where he's, you know, oh, I got to talk to the maid and make sure she's not moving my stuff around. And those little moments where he's like talking to himself in his house, I just really appreciate it. And again, it's social commentary about rich people. It is. You know, like, right. Like, he, owns the beach, he owns the whole beach and yeah. he can get away with, you yeah. know, he can get away with this. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting because I think that it was sort of a cultural reminder that Leslie Nielsen, prior to Airplane, actually was a dramatic actor. You know, he got sort of re-racked in, in the consciousness for these parodies and these spoof movies because of Airplane, because of The Naked Gun, because of Police Squad. But if you go back prior to that, he was quite a serious actor. And I, there, there's that movie Nuts with Barbara Streisand where he plays a rapist quite seriously. And it's it's in comparison to everything we know about him now and how we think of him as Mr. Magoo. What I like about Creepshow, it's like, oh no, this is a very learned and studied actor. And he is terrifying. And I think the fact that he is able to dip back into the comedy makes him scarier. Would you agree? Agreed. Absolutely. And to be honest, I only know him as a child of the 80s as a comic actor, you know, like growing up with those, you know, the Naked Gun movies and all, all of the stuff that he did. I didn't know that he was in a movie with Barbara Streisand, let alone play a rapist. So, you know, seeing him in Creepshow performing this way, especially revisiting Creepshow after those other movies had come out, you go, oh my God, it's Leslie Nielsen, but he's so scary. Yeah. And I have to say that simple conceit of the tide coming in and being buried that way. Like, you you know, it's an indelible image that like, you know, as a beach lover, well, you never forget that. And like how fucking horrifying that would be to be trapped yeah. like that. I love that Rebecca is further down the beach. So we kind of see what's coming for him. Right. Um, right. Right. So, and then at, at some point the TV shorts out and he's alone and he's like, oh my God. What begs the question, best kill? I think that has to be the best kill for me. It's so elaborate and so wild and so, so mean and cruel. And I don't know. I, I can't think of a better one right now. Yeah, it's either that or Ups and Pratt with the cockroaches eating him from the inside out. <laughs> yeah. That's another one we haven't talked very much about. So I'm glad that you brought it up because what's that fear called where you have, uh, you're a clean freak? Well, germophobia or... Misophobia, I think is is what it is. Misophonia is what I have, which is like, I can't handle people chewing. The sounds, yeah. yeah but th this is misophobia, which is like a, a germ, neat freak, clean freak. That's an interesting one because I think it probably plays really well for people who have those fears, you know? Um, like I would be much more horrified if those roaches had been snakes. And my partner, Nihat, actually fucking hates roaches. He could never, ever make it through that episode. He he can't even look at them like when we see, you know, them on TV. Certainly <laughs> if I point one out to him on the sidewalk or something, he gets mad. Yet, you know, rats and snakes and things don't bother him. For me, snakes. I don't really like snakes. But I bet that that episode really plays well for people like Nihat. I wanted to ask you, Erica, because 
It's true. This particular episode in the movie is the one that tends to be remarked upon the least, at least amongst fans of the film that I know. And I'm wondering, because back at the beginning of the conversation, we talked about how uh, most of the stories handle that vibrant EC comics color palette. But the cockroach story is, is very sterile and very white, honestly. I'm wondering if you think because of that, it's an outlier aesthetically that it maybe doesn't click when we think about this movie as, as much? I guess it is. If I take a wild guess why this one, um, I think it it could be, maybe it's the last one. It could be that it's a one-person story. Like we only had the Stephen King story. That was a one-person story. And I don't know, it's definitely a downer. Like he's he's a really awful person. Right. And like it's, it's, it's satisfying to see him get his comeuppance. But yeah, maybe it is the color. Although I think it's appropriate for that story. You create color contrast with the roaches. Yeah. And then there's like one shot where you see like the window outside and it's like gross, gray, New York. But then so like it's it's all about him losing his control over his little world. Yeah, for sure. Okay, Erica. Um, yes. We have touched on all of the episodes of Creepshow, including the prologue and the epilogue. And we touched on the sequel, Creepshow 2. I wanted to know if you have any thoughts on the series that's uh, currently on Shudder. I have not been able to check out the series yet. I saw like the first couple of minutes where uh, he like what a bitch. pulls open the crate. I know, I know. I, I just mean... haven't, I wanted to, but I haven't had time. <laughs> I've just been like obsessively rewatching the first movie. Okay, Honestly, all right. like all we love. <laughs> Fair enough, fair enough. As a fan, the series is hit or miss, but it's definitely worth watching because when it's good, it is great. And when it's not so great, it doesn't matter. That's the great thing about an anthology. I really get pissed off when I watch a three-hour movie and by the end, I'm like, you fucking took three hours. Whereas this is like, if you don't like one, who cares? It's 10 minutes. One of the episodes that I will say that I really, really loved with no spoilers, but if you're an Evil Dead fan, somehow oh, Creepshow managed to pull off an Evil Dead episode in the context of Creepshow. Not a reference, not a illusion. It's actually set within the Evil Dead universe in, a, in the context of a Creepshow story. And I was shocked because I mean like we've seen crossovers in horror before but I've never seen something like this and so open and earnest and actually quite fucking good I think you'll love it it's I think the season two opener that's amazing I'm gonna have to check it out now the ones that are great are are fabulous I haven't seen that one either Michael so I I probably only watched maybe half or less of what's available for creep show but the thing is is every time I tune in like go oh I don't know what to watch okay I'll watch more creep show I'm always glad mm, I did yeah. you know just the few minutes that I saw of it it really looks like it's an ode to that original creep show aesthetic yeah you know like the creep pulling oh, the comics is. out of the crate and you see that like you know red lighting and the um it looked like puppetry but I might be a cheesy yard but like I just appreciated that they went back to also that original iteration of the creep because I, I preferred the original creep over the one that's in Creep Show 2. As much as it's like horror host Agreed. and fun, it's a little too Dracula, not enough like skeleton Grim Reaper for me. Right. Agreed. I think we're all on the same page there. And also, Michael, we all talked earlier about how much we love the creep from Creep yeah. Show. And I don't know if I should bring this up again, but I'm going to. But one of our former guests, Franco, 
AKA the wolf tummy actually built a model. He sells a model of the creep in the box office that I'm actually looking at. It's right really now cool. That I have it has, it's amazing. It's amazing. I'll send you a picture of it, yeah. Erica. And um, I'll post it on, on, on the Patreon. Um, but it's really fabulous. One question I did have for both of you is we, we haven't talked about other horror anthology movies. And I'm wondering if each of you like horror anthology films. You know, Creepshow obviously is one of many. And if so, do you have another favorite? Because I know I do. Well, I, I love horror anthologies. I mean, two of my bigger outings as a filmmaker have been in horror anthologies. So it would be kind of rem- remiss true, to true. say otherwise. But as far as from this era, I mean, I actually quite love Cat's Eye, which is another Stephen King adaptation. Ah, I yes. think that um, the, uh-huh. the presence of James Woods aside, which of course we just have to reconcile with in the 80s horror pantheon, the story with the troll in the wall and little girl Drew Barrymore. I love that story. Oh, good. So good. And uh, I also love all of those anthology films from the 70s that Amicus did, like, uh, you know, The House That Dripped Blood, Asylum. Those are all really wonderful. I'm a, I'm a huge fan of the format. I think the thing is, is if you can tell a good story, it doesn't matter the length. It's, a good story is a good story. Yeah, sometimes shorter is better. <laughs> Absolutely. God. Um, I haven't seen a ton of horror anthologies. I mean, I'm, I've been a Twilight Zone fan, so it's more TV. But the VHS films, the first, and I've seen the first two for sure. Those are great. You know, sometimes the story can get a little wacky and crazy relative to like how they present it because they tend to present it in a more serious tone. Yeah. Um, but I really enjoyed those films a lot. I think those VHS movies are great. That first one, the last story in the haunted house, when the like hands start slapping against the wall. Oh yeah, I, I saw that in the theater, and I'm like, this, this is it. This is church. I love this. Yeah. Yeah. Those are obviously some of the more modern, the newer of the anthology series, and they are fabulous. Um, the two that I was going to point out, and, and maybe Erica, I'm going to strongly encourage you to watch these. One is called Trick or Treat, which is the sort of underrated. Mike Doherty film that I think once people see it, they go, wait, what? why didn't this get a big release? Why Why haven't yeah. I heard of this? And horror fans now definitely know it, but still like your average moviegoer, you know, should know about that movie. It's so good, so well done. And then the other um, that I think doesn't get talked about enough because I think it's dismissed as being silly, but it's actually quite good, is uh, Tales from the Hood. Oh, yeah. Um, Yeah, it's a great horror anthology film. And if you've dismissed it because you thought it was just, you know, going to be a silly comedy, because I think the title throws people, no, 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 go check it out. It's fabulous. I think that you brought that up is so great because that movie is a perfect anthology as far as I'm concerned. I love that movie. I think that's a perfect cross of social commentary and horror. The only bummer about Tales from the Hood is all of those stories are addressing issues 20 years ago that are still fucking issues today. True. Yeah, that's actually a good point, not to get too heavy, but, you know, when we were in the pandemic and when, of course, George Floyd happened and Black Lives Matter was, you know, marching in the streets and my partner and I, who is an immigrant and um, didn't grow up in this country, you know, he moved here 11, 12 years ago. So with George Floyd and all of that, I, I said, oh, yeah, this is this has been an ongoing thing and it's unbelievable. I showed him do the right thing. And that movie, if you watch it, not only is it so brilliant, but the tragedy of it is exactly what Michael just brought up from Tales from the Hood, which is this is stuff artists, filmmakers, activists, people have been screaming about, making content about for years, 
And look how little has changed. That is really depressing. But even more so, go watch Tales from the Hood because it's as relevant now as it was then. And it's really well done. That's great. Thank you for those recommendations. Yeah, of course, Erica. I'm always here to school school the children. (laughs) Well, speaking of recommendations, (laughs) since you recommended Creepshow to us and bringing it back to the film at hand, as you know, I like to ask this question of all guests. You saw this movie on VHS after renting the second one first, or maybe it was DVD. You said it was the thousand, so it was probably DVD. From the time that you saw it to now, it's clearly a movie you love. Over the course of this conversation, you had a lot to say about it. You've thought about it a lot. From that initial viewing to now, how has your relationship with Creepshow changed at all, if at all? I think when I saw it, it was maybe a little bit less in context, right? So I didn't know too much about the horror comics of old. Like I had seen Tales from the Crypt and I remembered like being a little kid and like seeing that intro on TV, the feeling of like being sucked down those stairs almost. That was very impactful. But again, like the dot connecting kind of came later for me. And then as I started doing drag and then as I started delving into more like horror drag and delving into more of that comic book style, then it just sort of became one of those films that's like always in my like creative wheelhouse of things that I just draw inspiration from and inspired by. So, and I love the the EC horror comics nature of it because that's like, to me, George Romero, Stephen King, EC Comics, like they all kind of meet in the center and they come together to create like this really powerful statement about each of the different issues that are presented in the, in the story. So, yeah. yeah. That is a perfect way to sum up our talk with you. My goodness. Very well done. Now, Erica, where can our listeners who uh, want to know more about you or continue to follow you, where should they check you out if they don't already? Most of them, I'm sure, are, are already following you. Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, Erica Clash, Erica with a K, Clash with a K. Uh, Twitch.tv forward slash Erica Clash. I stream there every week, at least twice a week. If you have Shutter, um, or even if you don't have Shutter, get a get a trial, get buy a subscription. Uh, Dragula. Season two is on Shutter along with season three, season four, and the Resurrection special. So check those out. For sure. I mean, all three of us are actually part of the Dragula family. And that's right. Um, yeah, that's more for the listeners. I was all the judges. Because yeah. you were you were uh, one of my judges on my season. So yeah, I was a judge the, the episode that you got kicked off. And I uh need to say for the record that uh I and Coco Peru we're still baffled. That's all Thank I can you. say. And, and <laughs> listeners, I have not I have not ever paid Peaches to say that, but she brings it up every time. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's that thing where um, we all know who has the ultimate decision and yes. the power. I, I don't think they make any, you know, that's not a secret. And it's Ian. <laughs> Yeah, probably. <laughs> probably it's Ian. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, and also it, it's obvious when you watch the episode, you know, um, Coco and I were uh, fans of what you did. That was a really, you know, if you haven't seen the episode we're talking about, you know, it's of specific interest to listeners of this podcast because the challenge the girls had was to make a horror movie. And so what a fun episode to have been a part of. So yeah, go check out Erica Clash, Dragula season two, if you haven't seen it yet. And Erica, we love you. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. Talk soon. Okay, 
okay, that was the fantastic Erica Clash. And oh God, I was so glad to have her on the show because Michael, I just love her. I just think she's fantastic. What a sweet, smart girl. I absolutely agree. I am in awe of Erica's talent. I really, really love everything that she's doing with drag and her her own homages to horror that she does through her looks and through her fandom. And one of the things I really, really valued about our conversation with Erica was how she dug into the nuance of Creepshow because I think it's really easy to look at Creepshow as the kind of popcorn candy colored movie that it's presented as. And it's one of the reasons we love it. But she really helped contextualize that through line of of the humanity in all of Mm -hmm. these stories and how each of the stories in many ways are about intrapersonal abuse and isolation and loneliness. And I really, really loved what she brought to that conversation and how, you know, we had to stop and think about this movie that we love in this this way and how absolutely right she was. I think that anytime I can sit and talk to a horror fan like Erica who celebrates a movie in this way, but also um, has, has dissected a movie in this way, it's always a joy. And we got to talk about the bigger picture of how that is something that does run through a lot of Stephen King's storytelling yeah. and how much how much that's just been such a crucial part of, um, well, his view on American culture, but then how his view on American culture and his his stories have become now part of American culture. I mean, Stephen King is, you know, just such a huge part of pop culture for this country and has sort of expressed and written about things that are very American and very human. The other thing that she did that I thought was really lovely is she brought in the Argento of it all. Yeah. Because we recently, you know, have also done an Argento episode. And she, of course, brought up the fact, which we discussed in that episode, that Romero and Argento had collaborated on uh, a Romero film and an Argento film and how this look, especially in some of the Creepshow episodes, you know, I would say the crate and Father's Day, especially just be the colors, the lighting are very Argento. And uh, I love that connection. It's like, oh yeah, duh. You know, what's really interesting is that Argento and Romero seemed to have stayed in touch up until George's passing, even though they hadn't worked together in a long time. Because I don't know if if fans remember this. And and again, with movie announcements, uh, everything's sort of intangible till it's not. So this could have been looser news than not. But a few years before Romero passed, I remember it had kind of made its way around the trades that Romero and Argento had reconnected because Romero was going to direct a 3D remake of, I believe, Deep Red here at Stateside. And I would have loved to have just seen how Romero would have approached that because Deep Red, of course, is so very European. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, I love the idea that whether that would have worked or not, that they were still talking and that they loved each other enough to be like, sure, do it, you know? Well, and it's just lovely that sort of international collaboration that we actually don't really see that often. It's it's fairly rare. Or maybe you have a director who works in both places, which is also rare, right? Like uh, I just watched Benedetta by Paul Verhoeven, um, which, you know, I think that director in particular is so fascinating because his American films are so different than his international films, you know, or what we would call his foreign films. And Benedetta, mm, it's definitely, I loved it. It's it's for sure got some um, showgirls in a convent going for it. And Michael and I do 
often talk about all of these other movies because Michael and I are watching movies, we're consuming movies, we're Constantly. living in movies, yeah. where we are. There's more that we have to say about movies and more that we'd like to discuss than we can do just on this weekly podcast. So we do a lot of those discussions on our Patreon. We put out mini mass episodes. We also engage the listeners on the Patreon to let us know what they think about these movies. So, you know, recently I think I've talked about X, the Ty West movie, Benedetta. You've talked about uh, the Jane Mansfield movie. The Jane Mansfield story with Lonnie Anderson and Arnold Schwarzenegger. And it was so bananas that I did a mini mass solo episode about it. Because sometimes Peaches and I will jump on the microphone solo and talk about movies because you talked about The Intruder, the Sam Raimi. Right, uh, which I love. Rob Taper movie. And then we do episodes together. Peaches and I recently did an episode where we really dug into the Blair Witch Project. Inadvertently, we... Yeah. started just talking about, of all things, popcorn, not the movie, the food. And somehow it led us down this path to the greatest uh, found footage film of all time. So, yeah. If you are one of these movie obsessed people who loves to hear two dorks talk about movies a lot, but also you want to get in on the conversation, join us at the Patreon. And we even host live Zoom parties where we, we, we talk to you live and in person. So that's uh, our pitch for the Patreon. And then the last thing I'll plug is that Michael and I, the Midnight Mass podcast, have the extreme honor of partnering with Severin Films in celebration of the All About Evil Blu-ray re-release. And All About Evil is a movie I wrote and directed starring Natasha Leone and Thomas Decker and Cassandra Peterson, Mink Stoll, Peaches Christ. Uh, Michael's going to be moderating conversations in both San Francisco and Los Angeles with myself and the cast. So we're presenting these fantastic screenings. They're coming up in June. There's also a third screening being presented by friend of the podcast, Carla Rossi. Love uh, Carla. Yeah, for her queer horror show. So all of that information um, for those screenings, you can find out um, on the page live shows at peacheschrist.com. So you can find that on my website. And if you haven't had enough of me talking about movies, my final plug is that recently I teamed up with Kino Lorber to provide some commentary tracks for some uh, vault catalog movies. I joined historian David Del Val for a commentary track on the movie Son of Samson, which is an Italian uh, sword and sandal movie that was made in the late 60s or actually early 60s. And um, you can hear us talk about oily Italian men fighting monsters. And then uh, coming up in July, I provided a solo commentary track on Toby Hooper's I'm Dangerous Tonight, which I think, Peaches, you would enjoy because it's about a haunted dress that causes women to kill. That sounds interesting, but I'm, I'm more curious about the oily Italian men. Well, I mean, same. <laughs> <laughs> um, I just literally like thought maybe we were going to have an earthquake because like, you know, I live in an old Victorian and the building kind of shook a little bit. And that could be either because of an earthquake or because a truck drove by. You know, sometimes that happens and the building is old. But I don't know if you know this, but fucking Cousin Wonderlet moved in downstairs. And I swear to God, if she just walks across the, <laughs> the, the apartment, it can feel a little shaky. It was know? funny, though, because I, I couldn't see Peaches. So when I was talking about the oily Italian men, she was gazing off into the middle distance. And of course, I was like, <laughs> something is going on in the apartment. I was aware of that. But then I also was like, or she's just really having a moment here. <laughs> <laughs> no, I actually, oh my God, talk about feeling seen. Speaking of being a horny old lady, I really, I really felt like that 
uh, representation in the movie X by Ty West was affirming of my, <laughs> my status as a horny old lady. And if you haven't seen the movie, I won't say much else, but, but we do talk about it on the Patreon. So go there. No, what I was doing, Michael is, and I don't know if you have a way to do this too, but if you live in California, uh, you're used to having earthquakes. And so when there might be an earthquake, what I do is I stare at the uh, blinds that I have in the windows, because if they're moving, moving back and forth enough, then I know it's an earthquake. And that's usually how I can tell because often you know you just you can feel it but then you look and you see that something's moving that shouldn't be moving and it's like oh yeah we're having an earthquake yeah I do similar well because I'm always at my desk so I look at my coasters and things because I can mm-hmm. see them moving Ew, uh, I'm always working yeah that's not something to be jealous of <laughs> I, th- I think your ooh was ill-placed at this time <laughs> well taking it back to X which is a retro horror this was a week of retro horrors and we love celebrating those horny or not and if you too like retro horror then you you too might be one of the children of the pop for now. <laughs> <laughs> Midnight Mass is created and co-hosted by Peaches Christ and Michael Verratti. The series is produced by Joshua Grinnell, Michael Verratti, and Heather Dunham. The Midnight Mass score and theme music was composed by Andrew J. Sepperly. Midnight Mass is a Peaches Christ production.